In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Tower of Ivory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So good evening. You might find tonight's topic to be an odd pairing, uh, talking about salvation of humans and then jumping to the topic of salvation of aliens, and by which I mean the extraterrestrial kind. There are multiple people with whom I had conversations about both of these topics, so they're not just coming out of nowhere. Uh, it's on people's minds. And the reality is that there's really only one topic tonight. And once you understand that, then everything falls into line. And the aliens just becomes an, an addendum to the heart of what I'm here to present, which is that outside of the church, there is no salvation. And just for clarification with the talk, whenever I say Catholic, I refer not only to the Latin church, aka Roman Catholics, but all particular churches and liturgical rites that are in communion with the Pope and are recognized by canon law. These might have different structures and modes of liturgical worship, but they're all part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which they all profess in union. And whenever we start a new topic, we should begin with what's most knowable to us. And that means that we need to begin with man in general, who we are and what we were made for. The first thing to note about mankind is that God has hardwired our nature into us. We cannot separate ourselves from the fact that we're people and that we're created for a purpose. And we see that there's a need and a point to life. Anyone who's spent time being a human should understand that not everything we do will satisfy us. Not everything we do is actually good for us. In contrast to philosophers such as Locke and Hobbes, mankind is directed toward something. But more precisely, mankind is directed toward someone. And that someone is our ultimate end. And that someone is God. St. Thomas Aquinas defines happiness as the possession of a thing. And regarding man's ultimate happiness, the fulfillment lies in the possession of God, in having God for ourselves and being in heaven with him. Our lives should be directed towards God as the greatest good. When men lose that order and they decide to not have God as their aim in life, which we see over and over again, that's when men start to become unhappy. Whenever you put a lower good above a higher good, you're acting against your nature, and so you'll become unhappy because you're going against the way that God made you. That is why people make idols out of anything they place as a higher good than God himself. For instance, food is good, right? We need food to live. We need food to, to do what we do, uh, and that it has a goodness of taste to it, and we're satisfied after we have it. But if someone puts the pleasure of that taste above the, the goodness of food, and they, they eat too much, then they become a glutton. They've put a lower pleasure, uh, just the enjoyment of food, above a higher one, which is for keeping the integrity of our bodies. Another example, God has ordered the sexual act toward procreation of children. And when that's disrupted, the act becomes a misuse of everyone who's involved, and it becomes gravely sinful. Pleasure is not there for its own sake, so we cannot put carnal pleasure above the good, which is keeping the integrity of our bodies. 
And that's also, uh, justice is an expense there and becomes evil when that is not kept in the act. And that all goes back to us, that we're built with a purpose, that we have a nature given to us by God that we need to cooperate with. We can't just use our wills and say, well, I will to be uh, a tiger now, so now I'm a tiger. That's not how human nature works. That's not how the human will works. We have to look and see what God has given us as our ultimate end and then align ourselves with that. We do have a fixed, unchanging nature as humans, which means that we also have passions to help us live by. They're not to be the greatest goods in our lives, as we see with food. Too much, uh, too much of a passion for food can lead you to be a glutton. But to regulate them and overcome them, and to use our rationality to order our lives for salvation. Those, all those things that we have to deal with, all those trials, they're there to test our love for God. And in doing so, then we, we show that love, and it's outward, and other people can see it. And we've, we merit the grace of God's salvation. You might encounter people, though, in today's culture that say that we don't have a human nature and that we're blank slates out of the womb. Give them a plate of their favorite food. And, and when they're hungry, and let them see, see what happens. Do they dump the food off of the plate and then eat the plate? No, they don't. Of course they're going to eat the food because that's what's in accord with our nature. And this also means uh, that we're no different from our ancestors regarding that nature. We're human today, and we're just as human as the people were 2,000 years ago, and we're just as human as they were 15,000 years ago. Regarding cooperation with God as our greatest good, the first roadblock in human history against God was with Adam and Eve when they disobeyed. That created order in the material world, which trickled down to the rest of the material creation, and that fall, that fall changed everything else in matter, in the material of the world. And it's all fallen now. And we still feel these effects today. We are still human like Adam and Eve, but we've lost that state of original justice which they had. Our spiritual inheritance from Adam is original sin. And if you want proof of this, look at the world around you. Things go wrong. People don't do what they're supposed to do. Man seems at odds with each other and at with nature itself, even though it's the world that we're born into and the world that we're a part of. If someone can't see that things are off in the world, then they're living in a delusion. They're not acting rationally, rationally, and so they're not going to be ready for these higher truths that the faith can give them. God allows all those bad things to happen, but you have to understand that it's his permissive will, since he is not the cause of it. He's not the direct cause of it. Life is hard and has been designed that way by God so that we might realize how much we need him. And humanity has a lot to contend with. Original sin has interrupted our access to God, both directly, since we're conceived with it, and indirectly, when even after baptism we deal with those effects of the fall. And it sounds stark, right? That God would allow us to be born and yet to not have access to him as we should, and this is where Jesus Christ comes in. This is where God takes the, the forefront and in the entire human history with the incarnation. If you don't think that the fall of Adam was that bad, pause and just take some time to think about the incarnation itself. Even though we each had a guardian angel assigned to us from the time that we were conceived, we still needed God to save us. 
The angels were not enough to straighten out humanity's trajectory. Humanity kept getting worse and worse and worse. You see this throughout the Bible when it says in the beginning they lived 800 years, and then it's 600, and then it's just 120. Uh, that living less and less time is supposed to say that humanity is not getting any better, we're getting worse. And that's where God comes in. That's where he becomes one of us and takes on our nature. And this is the God who's completely other than us, who's completely separate from us, who loves us, but we can't access him by our natural abilities. Even praying is God's gift to us, the fact that we can talk to him, the fact that we can give him glory and we can ask him and, and supplicate him. That's all a gift from God. But the incarnation was not enough. God chose that it wasn't enough. Jesus had to be crucified for us and die in the most gruesome way possible to save each and every one of you. That was how bad humanity had gotten. That is the horror of sin. It shows the simple reality of how the fall of Adam ruined everything. And we needed something as drastic as the death of God, the death of Jesus, to redeem us. That is the divine initiative, where once again God reached out to man, this time not to give us life or give us commandments to help our lives, but to reach out and give himself completely over to us when he died on the cross. And when we're thinking about that gift, that salvation is a gift from the Lord, and we have to open ourselves to receive it, naturally speaking, if someone offers you water, or offers you anything in general, that gift is never completely free. You have to put your hand out if you want to take the bottle of water and grasp it, and you have to raise it up, and you have to drink it, and you have to let it down, slide down into your stomach. The water might be there, but you have to do something. And it's the same thing with our salvation, that it's not completely in God's hands. God leaves a little bit up to us to cooperate with him. Otherwise, if it's not free, if we can't be free to say yes to God, if we can't be free to love him, then it ceases to be love. Then we're just automatons, and we have to do whatever we're, we're programmed into to do by our nature. But that's not how God made us. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that's where we see this. It's accessible to everyone. But we do not all receive Jesus into our hearts. We do not all profess his belief on our lips. We join in this church and act like we believe. If we don't do those things, then we don't have life within us. You know, we have to profess our belief. We have to receive him into us. We have to be a part of his church. And we have to act like we believe. Christ established his one true church, the Catholic Church, to extend his incarnation into the world and throughout history. The church is his mystical body. It means that it is his real body. It's not, in the, same it's not the same presence as the Eucharist, but it is truly Jesus. It's present in a different way. I mean, we don't go around worshiping each other uh, and, and God's presence in us. We worship God in the Eucharist because he's physically there. But we still have that respect. And it's one of those mysteries of our faith to see how the church is indeed Christ's mystical body. And this is where faith and reason help each other. Uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, sacred scripture says that no, under no other name in heaven given to men whereby which we are to be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. If that is the case, and Christ established the church to be his presence in the world, then people must give their assent to the Catholic Church, who holds, protects, and passes on the teachings, 
and the presence of Christ to the next generations. That also means that it is through the church, being Jesus' body, that God has chosen to save. Jesus did not found uh, a, a church, but he chose to be, he did not have to found a church, but he chose to because he loved us and wanted to leave us with a guide. Uh, but he also wants us to be incorporated into him, to become a part of that mystical body. Jesus did not found a plurality of churches. He found one, just as the body has many parts, yet it still remains one body. He wants us all to be one, to all live in the one truth, just as God the Father and he are one. And the Pope comes into the picture because the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth and is the visible symbol of unity within the church, binding us together. Jesus did not come to divide humanity or to divide his body. He came to unify those who are a part of him. Many have rejected him and remained separated from the Lord in the next life since they began that separation here on earth. So to be a part of the true church, what must we do? We have to accept Peter, uh, who is always mentioned in the Gospels before the other apostles, and we have to be baptized. Part of that unity is drawing all of us into the one body and incorporating us into the mystical body of Christ, which is his church. Not only did the Savior command that all nations should enter the church, but he also decreed the church to be a means of salvation without which no one can enter the kingdom of eternal glory. The ordinary way that men are incorporated into the church is through the sacrament of baptism. This sacrament follows the command and the form that our Lord gave us right before he ascended into heaven. Go forth and preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The matter of baptism is water, symbolically, as well as washing a person's sins away, including original sin and actual sin up until the age of reason. Uh, and that's how the baptism usually happens. And when that happens, we know that a person for sure is joined to the church. Now, there's also extraordinary means of baptism. Uh, and there are two extraordinary ways outside the usual means to be baptized. And that's a baptism by blood and a baptism by desire. Baptism by blood refers to those who are martyred for the faith without being formally baptized in the ordinary way. That is, they were not baptized through a minister of the Catholic Church with the proper formula as we know it. However, God will still accept that baptism of blood, and meaning that they're still being incorporated into God's one true church. Many times this refers to those people who were prisoners with the early Christians uh, at the time of Rome when they were about to be let out into the games to be martyred. And... The, those who believed, they professed their belief, but they didn't have any water. They didn't have uh, someone to baptize them at different times. Maybe they had bars in the way or they were in a different cell or cistern. And so these people, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to give their life for the faith. But the circumstances made ordinary baptism impossible to attain. Those who were martyred with St. Cecilia are one instance of this baptism by blood. They professed their belief in the triune God of St. Cecilia, and they were willing to give their lives for God, even though they did not go through any sort of formal catechetical training to explain the mysteries of the faith to them. They simply understood who God was, that he is a trinity, and they died because they believed in him, and they weren't willing to renounce that belief. 
As scriptures say, fear not those who can kill only the body, but him who can send the soul into unending fire. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And whenever I think of baptism by blood in the church, I think of two feasts that we have, St. Perpetua and the Feast of the Holy Innocents. In the Passion of St. Perpetua, we are given a historical account, partially in, written in her own hand from her own diary, someone else completed it, from around the year 200. And in that diary, she records a dream that she had of her brother. He looked injured, he looked dirty, he looked thirsty, and he, he was just a small child at that time. And he was trying to reach the waters of this fountain, but he could not lift himself up. He couldn't get to those saving waters for him to be satisfied. But St. Perpetua realized what the meaning of that was. You know, Christianity is something that had come later to her household. Her father very much disapproved of it. He actually disowned her because she professed to be a Christian. But it was in that dream that she realized that her brother wanted to be baptized, but he died before he could be baptized in the ordinary way. And she, St. Perpetua had another dream where God came to her. And this was right before her martyrdom, the night before. And she realized that her younger brother would be baptized, but it would be with her blood. It would be with her faith. And the fact that the brother had that desire in life, but couldn't reach the waters on, her own, but on his own, but relied on, on Perpetua. Uh, that, that was a very powerful dream for her, and it gave her encouragement in the hour of her greatest temptations. God would use the graces from her death to baptize her brother and allow him to reach the waters of baptism with perpetuous sacrifice. The Feast of the Holy Innocents is the second example. Without speaking and without ordinary baptism, those young male babies who were murdered by Herod the Great gave witness to Jesus as God. With these two feasts, we see how God truly accepts baptism by blood and how the church has believed this from the very beginning. St. Thomas Aquinas says that all men in this life either come across knowledge of Jesus and the triune God by preaching, witness, or illumination. The first two, preaching and witness, especially by martyrdom, are obvious. Illumination is the interesting one, since Thomas Aquinas says that when a person is faced with invincible ignorance— AKA, they have no means of receiving either preaching or a witness or of someone to the Christian life. That God will actually send an angel to the person with invincible ignorance to enlighten their intellect, to give them the chance, the knowledge about who God is, and give them the chance to choose him. Because we, at death, we're locked in whatever moment we're locked in, either a moment of love or a moment of hate. And so they have to be offered this moment before they die. And at this point, when they're given that knowledge, they're free to accept God or they can reject him. And regarding this invincible ignorance, know that many supposed theologians have tried to dumb it down, saying things like, you know, if they had heard Jesus' name, then it would have been uh, impossible for them to know who God was, that just the name, it's not powerful enough. But the ignorance has to truly be impossible to overcome. It has to really be invincible. It cannot be conquered. Demons flee at the mention of the name of Jesus. There is power behind his holy name. But there are many men who ignore the movements of their hearts. And by living a life outside of the church, they learn to keep falling into these movements, to do the same thing that they've always known, to not do the right thing, but to do just what's easy for them or, or what they're familiar with. And so they built this life so far from God 
and they've inculcated these habits into their daily lives uh, and into their will that make the it not invincible ignorance, but just simply ignorance. And to be truly invincible ignorance, uh, an example would be, let's say there's an undiscovered island in the middle of the Pacific, which no nation has ever been to. That's the kind of invincible ignorance we're talking about, that they have had zero way, it's completely impossible for them to contact uh, any information about Christ and the church. That should be a comfort to us, since it means that God gives everyone a chance for salvation. One could conjecture that God even allowed the holy innocents to exercise free will, to have been given that grace to make a free decision, which enabled them to give their lives for God, even though they could not speak, and you might think they hadn't reached the age of reason. But to think that God could have given these children the, the ability to reason, their rationality at a much younger age, usually it's the age seven that the church acknowledges that, but it's not out of line to think that God could have done it. Because if you look at Jesus and Mary, since the time that they were conceived, that very moment, they enjoyed the use of human reason. They enjoyed the use of being able to choose God and take moral action. And we get this from the book of the, of the prophet Isaiah. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. And from that, we also have another tradition where we think that St. John the Baptist, and more than likely, St. Joseph, each enjoyed the same privilege, at least from the womb. They were given the age of reason in the womb. And this is why they were able to live such outstanding lives, because they had been able to form these habits from such a young age to do the right thing. Therefore, this teaching for the holy innocence is not out of line with tradition, since we have those traditions in our liturgical calendar, and it's not out of the realm of possibility. We've seen it before that God can give the age of reason to someone who's young. In his infinite mercy, God has willed that the effects necessary for one to be saved of those helps to salvation, which are directed towards man's final end, not by intrinsic necessity, but only by divine institution, can also be obtained in certain circumstances when those helps are used only in desire and longing. This we see clearly stated in the Sacred Council of Trent, both in reference to the sacrament of regeneration, the ordinary way of being baptized, and in reference to the sacrament of penance. The same in its own degree must be asserted of the church, in as far as she is the general help to salvation. Therefore, that one may obtain eternal salvation, it is not always required that he be incorporated into the church actually as a member, meaning through baptism by water, but it is necessary that at least he should be united to her by desire and longing. So the Council of Trent even says the church accepts baptism of desire uh, and that it's not something outside of our tradition. The distinction is that becoming a member does not only mean a baptism by water in the ordinary way. Certain people such as Father Leonard Feeney did not understand this. You might have heard of some controversy about him. He died in, in somewhat recently in 1978 and was stationed around the Boston area. He understood that there was no salvation outside of the church, but his view was stunted in just how God accomplished this. He was excommunicated because he did not properly see the means of acquiring baptism. He preferred a legalistic view uh, because not in line with the Catholic faith, 
And instead of truth about both the ordinary and extraordinary ways of being baptized, he only thought that it was the sacramental one. That was the only way to join God's church. And not to mention, so he was excommunicated for that. And not to mention, he disobeyed his superiors. So he broke a vow that he made directly to God and was not obedient. So whenever you see anyone, whenever something seems like it might be a little bit off, whenever religious commits a sin against one of their own vows, uh, know that a sin against a vow is actually a mortal sin. And it's actually a sacrilege in addition because they're breaking the solemn promise made directly to God. By their fruits, you will know them. So don't just read someone's writings. Look into their life. See what kind of life they're living. And if they're being holy, if what they're doing in life is accord with the, their state of life and what God's will is for them. And so more on the baptism by desire. Regarding baptism of desire, think along the lines of a martyr, not having enough time to be baptized before their death, as we've gone over. However, this desire need not always be explicit, as it is in catechumens, but when a person is involved in invincible ignorance. God accepts also implicit desire, so-called, because it is included in that good disposition of soul, whereby a person wishes his will to be conformed to the will of God. So someone who has cooperated with grace in their life, maybe they have never heard about Jesus or his church, but they've done the best that they can, uh, and they haven't fallen into mortal sin, and they haven't uh, outright rejected God with a pagan religion then we can say that there, that implicit desire might be there, that there is a hope for them. St. Thomas Aquinas said that everyone who has never heard of Christ or his church is given a chance in their life to accept or reject Christ. And toward the end of the encyclical on the mystical body of Jesus Christ, written by Pope Pius IX, when most affectionately inviting to unity those who do not belong to the body of the Catholic Church, he mentions those who are related to the mystical body of the Redeemer by a certain unconscious yearning or desire. And he, these he by no means excludes from eternal salvation. But on the other hand, states that they are, are in a condition in which they cannot be sure of their salvation since they re remain deprived of many heavenly gifts and helps which can only be enjoyed in the Catholic Church. So being a Catholic is an immense uh, advantage that the faithful enjoy. Why? Because we have the, the truth as Jesus wants us to have it on this earth, and it's been passed down throughout these 2,000 years from generation to generation, been protected along the way. And we see with what Pope Pius IX is saying in these wise, wise words, he reproves both those who exclude from eternal salvation, all who are united from the church by implicit desire, and those who falsely assert that men can be equally saved equally well in every religion. So he's avoiding both extremes. He's avoiding the extreme where it's you know, only uh, Catholics as you can see them in, in being actual members in the church through baptism and recording the sacramental record baptized by a priest. And he's also excluding those who say, oh no, everyone's doing fine. Every religion is okay. And you can be, every, God can save everyone in every religion. Uh, some religions are much harder for you to be saved in than others. That is what is so important to understand, that all of those who are still alive and have not been baptized are at an immense disadvantage when it comes to accepting God's grace into their lives. Think of all the sacraments that we as Catholics have in our church, and all the sacramentals as well, all those little helps. They're meant to build up the faithful. They're meant to teach us 
who God is and how to rely on him. And those who are not Catholic are at a disadvantage since Catholicism helps people to be saved better than any other religion can. Having the fullest truth of any other religion on earth gives the faithful the greatest advantages for their salvation, which no other religion can offer to the same degree. But back to baptism by desire in general. Speaking about parents who have miscarried but would have gotten their children baptized had the pregnancy come to term, those miscarried children have all been baptized by a baptism of desire. Uh, the will of the parents is definitive, but the circumstances of that child's life got in the way, or the mother's health, which means that, the, that God will accept the desire of parents just as he accepts the consent of parents on behalf of the child whenever an infant is baptized. Because, you know, you ask the, the infant, do they believe in God the Father Almighty? They can't say yes. They might, you know, coo at you or giggle, but they, they can't say yes yet. And that's why they rely on the godparents and the parents to say yes for the child, that this child uh, is in our custody and, and he would do it had, if he had the ability to. Pope Pius IX gave us the middle road on which we are to walk towards salvation. The church has not been given the power to damn people to hell. The Bible puts only one person there by name, and that's the devil. The others are heavily alluded to, but they're not actually spoken. On the other hand, the church cannot pronounce that everyone is saved without any effort or that God will save everyone who has not been baptized. That's boxing God. In the sacraments, God has promised us that what he told us he would accomplish, he actually does. But outside the sacraments regarding our salvation, the church cannot define what God does. The church cannot say God does this in every single instance uh, when he's not told us what he does. But it must not be thought that any kind of desire of entering the church suffices that one may be saved. It is necessary that the desire by which one is related to the church be animated by perfect charity, nor can an implicit desire produce its effect unless a person has supernatural faith. For he who comes to God must believe that God exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him. The Council of Trent declares, Faith is the beginning of man's salvation, the foundation and root of all justification, without which it is impossible to please God and attain the fellowship of his children. Once again, we're reminded, perfect charity with God as the end of our actions. And that perfect charity is difficult enough if you're Catholic. It's difficult enough if you know what you're supposed to do. So think of how hard it is for the person who doesn't have the truth of who God is, who doesn't have the advantage of knowing his commandments or the love that he calls us to in the Beatitudes, that they're not, they don't know how to seek God and then order their lives around God. Imagine how hard it is for them to cooperate with God's grace, to live a life of charity when they don't know what charity is. It seems like it's almost an impossible task, which it's not. But I will say the deck is severely stacked against the person who is not yet Catholic. A person who has spent their entire life as an atheist, for instance, will find it incredibly difficult to accept Jesus as Lord and be incorporated into his church. Even if the person had invincible ignorance, how hard it must be for someone who has been hardened into their own way of life to accept the one true God. I talked about the comfort of everyone being given a chance for salvation, but we must look more closely at the value of baptism to understand what someone's chance really is. We must be reminded what it 
an awesome grace baptism is, and how it, either as ordinary or extraordinary, is necessary for people uh, to be incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. The sacrament of baptism is a grace that we should cherish and appreciate. We are not called to keep the gospel to ourselves. We must not be like the rich man who did not share with what he had with Lazarus, who was poor and who was suffering throughout his whole life. That's all of those who don't, do not yet know the truth about Jesus Christ. And we are the rich man in that. We are the ones who are supposed to share what God has given us with those others around us who are suffering in life, even if they seem happy enough. You know, if they don't know Jesus, then they truly are not happy and everything else is shallow. Saying that it is easy to be saved with a life lived outside the Catholic Church is incorrect. Falsely saying that it is easy devalues baptism and angers God, who gave us the sacrament of baptism as a wonderful gift for our salvation. We don't want to deny any of God's gifts to us, and especially we don't want to deny something that starts us and infuses his life in us at the very beginning of our spiritual lives. Because that's the great grace of baptism, not only that it wipes away all of our sins done previously, but it gives some of God's life within our very souls. And if you look at the example of the church throughout the ages, missionaries did not give up their lives of comfort to have been martyred because baptism is simply a nicety. Baptism is the first step towards heaven, and everyone who is going to heaven has to take that step. Ordinary or extraordinary, baptism has to happen, but it is better for the faithful to be baptized in the ordinary way. Under the category of things Jesus never said, you can add the phrase, as long as you're a good person, you're going to be saved. Those who look like outwardly good people could have rejected God in their hearts. It's only God that can judge them and knows their soul and what state they're in. Many people nowadays try to cover over their personal sins with what look like good deeds for others to see. You see this, all the celebrities that donate all of these millions of dollars to PETA because the, the animals look so sad on TV. But... But what are they trying to do? They're trying to cover over everything that they've done, everything they've, they've uh, incorrectly given up, and all those moral sacrifices that they've made to become not only bad people, but to get money in the position that they're in now. So it is not enough to say that Jesus was a nice person, which you can argue against if you actually read the Gospels, because many people try to use that exact phrase to keep God at a distance. They think if Jesus was nice, well, I just have to be nice. I have it, right? If he, if he was just nice, then that's all that he expects of me. He wouldn't expect anything more. But the reality is that Jesus is calling us to be more than nice. He wants us to be holy. That is, he wants us to be more like him. He wants us to be more like God and to actually become one with him and incorporated into his body. Holiness transcends niceness and reveals how shallow being nice can be when it's not done with God in mind. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees with some harsh words, but they were words full of love, since God was calling them from their sinful lives to a greater way of living. Being nice is a red herring used by many Christians to avoid changing their lives. And it's different from the message of Jesus, because Jesus calls us to radical conversion. Whoever does not love God more than mother or daughter or father or son or husband or wife, is not worthy to be my disciple. Love God first, and then you can love your neighbor as yourself. 
The love of God is primary in that. And I'll also point out how Jesus never said that everyone is doing fine where they are. Because not everyone is living a life that God is calling them to. Not everyone is, belongs to a religion that helps them in their salvation. Almost all unbaptized are not doing okay, and they need to hear the good news about the kingdom of God. Also in the category of things Jesus never said is that there are multiple churches. Many mainstream Protestants think that Jesus wanted a federation of different churches when our Lord was constantly praying that they all may be one. When his garment was seamless as he underwent his passion, that symbolized the unity of the church, being clothing his mystical body. And on Peter's confession, Jesus founded his church. Church is in the singular there, as in one church. And it's the same in any language that you read it. When you read the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament, what should strike you is a certain urgency that's contained within them. Part of the message is that our lives are short that people need to be baptized if they are to be given the best chance to ultimately succeed and be saved and be with God. People need Jesus in their lives, for it is only through him that they will be saved. We do not box God with baptism. That is to say, we do not say that God is limited to just the sacraments, but we have to look at how God set things up. God set up the usual vehicles of his grace to be the sacraments, he set up the usual way to be incorporated into his church as baptism. And we need to realize that the sacrament of baptism is that usual way, and it's the best for everyone who's still alive. The exceptions are baptism by blood and baptism by desire. They do exist, but if we, we can't focus on the exceptions as the, as the rule, and we can't say that there is no salvation outside the church, we all have to be incorporated in one way or another if we're going to get to heaven. All of Christ's actions tell us not to count on extraordinary baptism. That is the reason why he died for us. That is why he gave us the church and why countless martyrs gave their lives as witnesses to the fact that Jesus is God. Countless missionaries gave up all these worldly comforts that they had so they could spread the gospel to those who had never heard about Christ. Many of them were also martyred as they entered cultures that were hostile to Christianity. And that's how important it is to act in this life, to get as many people baptized as possible through water and the Spirit by God's church. It is so rare when someone who has never heard of Christ uh, is baptized by desire. We're not to count on this extraordinary way in life. We need to see salvation of such souls as being nothing short of miraculous. Think of someone who's relying on baptism of desire in this way. It would be as if someone told you that they stopped working and they quit their job because they found out about the lottery. So instead of working, they just buy lottery tickets instead. And they hope to be able to support themselves. They hope to be able to win big and just, or just win in general and make enough to make it by. It might happen, but how unlikely is that, that someone can actually live their life off of the lottery? And it's not prudent to live your life in that way, to rely on this chance when... It's far less of a chance if you try to work on your own, if you find a job that satisfies you and that will contribute to society and the, the upbuilding of those around you. And you'll get more self-worth out of that. Plus, there are no loopholes. If someone knows about baptism by desire, then they know enough where they should become Catholic and get baptized if they haven't been baptized already. 
The church should act with urgency at the force of her pronouncements, for Christ has commissioned us to go forth and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so here are three traditional teachings uh, from different popes on there is no salvation outside of the church. The first is from Pope Innocent III, and this is from the Fourth Lateran Council. There is but one universal church of the faithful, outside of which no one at all is saved. This means that everyone must accept Jesus Christ and his one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is also truly him as his mystical body. It's very clear and very precise. The next is from Pope Boniface VIII in his papal bull from 1302. We declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. This is because Jesus has chosen the successor of St. Peter to be his vicar on earth, his stand-in while he is away uh, in, in heaven and awaiting the second coming. And so the Pope cannot be denied by anyone who is part of the church because Jesus has given the church to the Pope to govern uh, and to sanctify and to teach on his behalf. To, to deny the Pope is to deny the church and therefore deny Jesus who founded the Catholic Church on the profession of St. Peter. And the last one I'll share with you is from Pope Eugene IV in 1444. The most holy Roman Catholic Church firmly believes, professes, and preaches that none of those existing outside the Catholic Church can have a share in eternal life, unless before death they are joined with her. No one, let his almsgiving be as great as it is. May no one, even if he pour out his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he remain with the bosom and the unity of the Catholic Church. Now, after having said that, you might say, well, there might be one problematic phrase in there, which is, even if he pour out his blood for the name of Christ. But what is Pope Eugene saying there? Pope Eugene is saying that if a person gives his life for the shallowness of the name of God without knowing him, but maybe it's a lie, uh, if the person really doesn't believe, then they're not within the church. It's like teenagers who try to find loopholes in the phrases of what you say. Uh, the Pope is talking about people who want to pass into heaven in the easy way, when there is no way around our Lord's words. There's no cheat code that you enter to get into heaven. Uh, if your blood is shed, but you don't shed it for God, then you're not a part of the church, regardless of what you say and do not mean. Pope Eugene is upholding the inner conversion that our Lord calls everyone to, since not everyone who says with his lips, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, from the Gospel of Matthew. If some people say they believe in Christ but have lived their lives as an enemy of God's church, how hard it must be for those people to accept the Catholic faith before the end of their lives. They might think they know Jesus when they have missed his presence on earth through his Catholic church. So there you have it. There is no salvation outside of the church. And now you know the ordinary and extraordinary ways to be incorporated into that church. And you also know not to count on those extraordinary ways for salvation. Since if your life is a life of tangled knots and bad decisions, it's going to be very hard to undo that entire life with one big pull at the end and one good decision. Because you've all, all your decisions have been leading towards not making eternal life a priority. And so now, the topic that I'm sure some of you have been waiting for, aliens. 
And, you know, this is a topic, especially for certain people uh, who better be listening to this from Westfield, uh, because they asked me multiple times about this topic. And I'm not going to talk about whether extraterrestrials are here or whether they exist or not. I honestly, I don't really care. Uh, but I'm really just going to set up some scenarios for you to walk you through them as an intellectual exercise. So the first scenario is that aliens exist, but they have merely animalistic souls and are not rational like humans. So to understand what I mean when I say that, look at Aristotle, who said that there are three types of animate souls. From lowest to highest, it's vegetative, animalistic, and rational. So the vegetative is found only in plants, maybe bacteria, and they grow, they react to things, they reproduce, they don't do very much. That's the vegetative soul. Those are the properties that a vegetative soul gives uh, a creature that's alive. An animalistic soul is found in animals. They're capable of what everything that a vegetative soul is capable of, like growing and reproducing, but they also have locomotive abilities and brain function to various capacities. But their brain capacities all rely on instinct. When you train a dog, you're training its instinct to go a certain way. It's not that it really understands you the way that a human understands you. It's just that it knows when you say these words, dog knows to sit down or lie down or do whatever you've trained it to do. Those animals with animalistic souls also have vegetative souls. And rational souls, the highest level of soul, is what we as humans have. Uh, they give us the capacity to make moral decisions for or against God. They also mean our intellects are not simply chemical or mechanical as in animals are. Our minds are partially immaterial. Uh, there's a lot of brain science out there where they think if they could just map every single neuron firing in your brain, they would find the pattern, they would know that you're thinking of a door or a tree or a house. But the reality is that the human mind, the plasticity is so much so, and it's so complicated that we're never going to be able to do that. And you know, going back that humans were the only material creatures with rational souls. Angels also have them, but they're not material. So creatures with rational souls also have an animalistic soul and a vegetative soul. Think of the first scenario, like finding fossils of bacteria on Mars. They're aliens, they're not smart, they lack those higher intellectual faculties that a rational soul would have, and they're no challenge to God who's the creator and author of all life. They're just sort of there. They just exist on another planet, and they don't disturb us because they're just you know, using their vegetative properties to make more of themselves. The second scenario that I could think of with the, this, first, um, this first example is that if the aliens have animalistic souls, but let's say they're super smart and they've expanded to Earth, it would be like finding a colony of bees and each of them had a, an IQ of 500. If each bee in a hive had an IQ of 500, who knows what, what bees could do, where they would be today. You know, maybe all those bees with 500 IQs, they all built their ships and left the earth because they saw humans were here and they didn't want to deal with us anymore. Who knows, right? That means that those aliens would be like any other animals. They would just be smarter, but their mission would be the same. Their mission would be to reproduce themselves and to expand. But they could not take moral actions either for or against God because they lack the rational soul. However, when these aliens would expand, they would do it with style. Uh, for instance, with something like, let's say, flying saucers. And the second scenario is that aliens exist and they have rational souls. 
This would be incredibly difficult to determine. The only evidence that I could think of that would actually prove that they had rational souls was if they did something like land in Vatican Square and they talked to the Pope and said something like, Masov Jesus Christ, Manatoku baptized. And then they press the, their Klingon translator and then it says, you know, that they've heard about Jesus Christ and they want to be baptized. Uh, and since the, after this first section of the talk, if God created these aliens to be rational, he would not create them just to, be, just to damn them. He would give them the means for their salvation, which would be through God's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So their intelligence would have been to get them here, to make the journey uh, to earth, to come into contact with the church and realize those means. However, I would argue that baptism for aliens is impossible. Even rational aliens, I would argue it's impossible. For what Jesus Christ did not assume, he did not save. So Jesus was fully human. He, he has a human intellect, human will, uh, human body, human everything, uh, just like us. In all things, he's like us except in sin. But Jesus didn't become an alien species. So therefore, baptism and all the sacraments are for humans. They're not for any other species, whether they be rational or not. Even angels, uh, being rationalistic, they don't have the sacraments available to them. I'm sure God uses them in some part to help confect some of the sacraments, but they aren't the recipient of that. And we know that uh, there aren't going to be other species that Jesus became because God is a trinity. There would be no other incarnations other than his human incarnation uh, because that would be Gnosticism. So one of those early church heresies because it's this secret knowledge that we really can't have and it's a denial of the trinity which is a denial of the very identity of God himself. My conclusion is that aliens are really a non-issue. If they are real and non-rational, whether they're smart or dumb, they would be in the same category as non-rational animals and would not be capable of either being saved or being damned. They would simply exist and they should prove no challenge to the faith. If they are rational, this would mean that their salvation lies completely in God's hands. They would still have to be joined to the church in some way, but that way would not be baptism. And since the sacraments are only for human beings, uh, meaning the sacraments would be unavailable to them, but God would provide some means of salvation for them, being as merciful as he is. And so that's, that's my presentation. If you enjoyed this month's presentation and you want more, you can listen to the past presentations that I've given on the podcast Tower of Ivory. It's available through Anchor as well as many other podcast providers. And you can join me at the end of August for my next presentation, which will be Interpreting Islam from a Biblical Perspective. This will be at 6.30 p.m. here in the Holy Family Parish Hall in South Deerfield on Thursday, August 26th. I'll use the Quran and the Bible and give you some hermeneutics you need to understand the Christian's view of Islam. And now I'll take questions, if any of you have them. Yes? Uh, assuming there is life out there, <clears throat> some of the scientists say with all the zillions of plants, there must be some there's life. Mm -hmm. uh, and if these people ever did contact us, they'd have to be of a higher intelligence than we are in order to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Wonder, you know, it's just, how, 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 how would that affect the church if that yeah. happened, except the blue gleaming in heaven on a spaceship yeah. or something? 
Well, well I was saying in, in the, the first part that if they're very smart, it, it all depends on whether or not they have rational souls, you know, how we're to, how we're to treat them. And if they are very smart, maybe they're, 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 you know, God told all creation be fruitful, multiply. So that's their whole thing to reproduce and expand themselves. And to me, it's just sort of like, so what if they are there? It doesn't really, it doesn't really change anything from our perspective. If they want to be baptized, that throws a monkey wrench into everything. But as long as they don't want that, then we can just view them as incredibly intelligent animals. And it doesn't, be careful with science, because you might try to submit creation to uh, a never-ending series of experiments. You know, like, let's say Adam had a 0.0002% chance of falling after he was created by God. And then if, you, if Adam was immortal, then you take that through infinite experiments, and then you come to the conclusion, well, Adam had to fall. But that's not the case, because that doesn't account for love. Science can't account for love. And God's creation... Uh, you couldn't say that it's mechanical, that God just does it. God creates everything he does with love. So it'd be very hard to say that from that scientific standpoint that there has to be life out there somewhere. Um, there are other people who conjecture that the universe is so large because it was meant to spread us out to keep us from spreading anywhere else uh, after the fall. So uh, it's, it's interesting to think about in general. But any, any other questions? Yeah, so she'll like, replace it with that. Well, the, the church actually has, has talked about this before. I have to dig up the documents. But there are different rulings. Like the when we say that Jesus descended into hell, the issue with, yeah. with English is that for hell, there are like three different Greek words. And we just use the one English word, hell, for like those who are completely damned eternally, those who are in uh, a state of just natural happiness. Um, uh, And that's what we we say about the the patriarchs, that they're in a state of natural happiness. That, you know, imagine how happy you are eating the, whatever your favorite food is, you're eating that plate of food for all eternity. And you're, you're just satisfied, right? That's not, it's less than the supernatural beatitude of seeing God, of understanding him, of, of that depth of love that he has for us. But you're, you're still taken care of. So that's where we say those people are who died without the benefit of, uh, of being baptized and actually living a righteous life beforehand. But it's still they have to be living a life within charity. Okay. Uh, Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.